Hi, my name is Dr. Deanne Ross. I'm the love theorist. This is the next step in sharing my book with you. This is the book for people who are watching on YouTube, uh, Brokenheartedness Towards Love in Professional Practice. If you've just come to this as your first moment of hearing about the book, you might want to look for the first one I did, which is called Brokenheartedness Introduction. We'll call this one Brokenheartedness, Lovelessness, which is Chapter 1. Okay, um, toward the end of the last one I did on this book, um, I uh, shared the first little bit of Chapter 1 on lovelessness, and I thought I would just make some summary comments on those first two or three pages I shared with you, uh, because this first chapter really lays the foundation for the whole book on explaining what brokenheartedness is and how love in the way I understand it, which is not not a standard everyday way of understanding love by any means, um, ca can help us understand brokenheartedness and know how to do something to overcome the pain of it in its multiple dimensions. So this first chapter on lovelessness is basically saying that the cause of brokenheartedness is lovelessness and lovelessness becomes the breeding ground for all sorts of violences against people, animals and nature more broadly. And when there is violence done to people, animal, other animals or nature, there is always entwined in that um, not only a lack of love, um, lovelessness, but also some form of injustice. So this first chapter is actually, as I was saying, uh, perhaps the briefest chapter in the book, but it's maybe the most important because I place myself in the story of the book and how I came to the ideas of what can make the difference if you're experiencing brokenheartedness or know someone who is. So just to recap on the first couple of pages that I shared, um, and by the way, this will probably be the only chapter that I read pretty much every every kind of word in the chapter. Other chapters I'll do some summary comments because um, otherwise you just find it too laborious to listen to every single point that I'm making in the book. I think this first chapter is worth reading um, in its entirety and it is fairly brief because it does lay the foundation for all that comes. Okay, thank you. So I start the chapter by talking about how when I was growing up as a teeny little person in the world, I didn't feel as though I had a voice. I, I felt invisible, I felt unheard, felt like if I spoke, I wouldn't, what I wanted and needed wouldn't happen anyway, that, that um, as a child I was unworthy of asking for what I needed and didn't deserve to be treated equally as an adult or to have my basic needs met. Um, I should just take what I could get, basically. I was part of a really big family. We were a very poor family and lived in a state government house, very small house. So there was, I had seven, have seven siblings and my mum and dad in this teeny little house and money was always an issue. Okay, so what I gave a couple of examples of is when I went to school, started school, that school was, I thought, would be good for me, and in some ways it was, but actually it was just like the classroom was just like being at home where there were competing interests and needs and 
I just became quite silent and invisible, even in the classroom. Then, as it as it happened when I was in my last year of high school, which I was where I was about fifteen, and I, I just to this day am gobsmacked. This happened. I was chosen to be one of several uh, student leaders, and I think it was because the most popular girl lived a few doors down from me because her mum was a single parent and so they weren't very wealthy but she was ultra smart and won all the awards at school and it just happened that we kind of butted up a little bit because we lived in the same street yeah I think we experienced the same kind of shaming but she she just excelled at school and I think because she was made a prefect they noticed me sitting in the shadows right beside her anyway the example I give in the first chapter is um having to speak at school assemblies and um, how terrifying that was because I had to use my voice and I didn't know if I had a voice and never heard it on a microphone, that's for sure. Um, and But in the end, I kind of thought, well, really, that's actually, actually more terrifying, having a voice, having all those people watch me and feel really embarrassed about my uniform not quite being right and um, yeah, my knees shaking and everything else, that maybe it's better not having a voice, actually. <laughs> I remember that being a distinct thought at the time. But also the other thing that happened, other than feeling very challenged being in front of the whole school assembly, was that I got a little fraction of self-esteem. I thought, oh, that actually felt good within all the terror of it. And um, and I had a, had a second thought um, about on the strength of that little bit of self-esteem that came uh, from that experience that if I just really apply myself and try and get some good marks um, in my end-of-year assessments, maybe maybe something, maybe some, I could have a life of some sort. And I had never before that I can really appreciate in any significant way for who I am as a human being growing up in the world um, that I had claimed that for myself. So I made room on the very crowded kitchen table with lots of noise and mayhem around me and just studied. and. Um, got some pretty solid marks which stood me in good stead for going further with my my education so you know like um, one of the things I learned at the time was to actually write my ideas and myself into the assessments and so writing became a way of basically finding myself and saving myself and creating some hope for a life for myself so this is where I'll pick up that story in a little more detail. Um, decades later, when studying for my doctorate, and whoa, is that a big step from, you know, struggling as a little poor girl to speak in an assembly, studying for my doctorate. But a long time had passed, by the way. I discovered how to describe my struggle to find my voice while reading Laurel Richardson's ideas. She explained that, let me just get this book up a bit so I'm not looking down all the time. <laughs> Um, she explained that we can make and remake ourselves through writing. And I thought, oh, yeah, of course. I actually had been doing that and hadn't really realised how much um, I had gained from writing. I didn't keep a journal, but I, I used writing in my work. Um, this idea of writing myself into new realities to try them on for size remains influential in how I negotiate new challenges, including writing this book. As I, as I just said, I wasn't one really for journaling, as some people would recommend. Nevertheless, in the context of my current academic position, writing for publication 
became empowering when I wrote myself and my ideas into the article. Self-storying and studying the self is called autoethnography. This method is not exactly mainstream in academia, um, but I find it gives credence to lived experience and emotionality as a valid source of knowledge. It's very influential in how I think about what knowledge is. It's not all of what knowledge is, but I think our lived experiences and our feelings are valid, valid knowledge. Thus, having a career that required me to express myself, to have a voice in written form, was a big part of how I empowered myself. From a terrified prefect speaking at school assemblies in my teens, I became a lecturer at university, which gave me plenty of opportunities to speak. It also helped me not to be too sensitive about whether the students agreed with what I was saying or even if they were listening. When I found the idea of voice, it was empowering because, as I was saying in, in the first sharing of my book, I, a lot of the language I used to describe my childhood, I definitely didn't have at the time. I didn't think of myself as a child without a voice. Yeah. When I, so when I found the idea of voice, it was empowering as it gave me a way of grabbing hold of that abiding experience of unworthiness and unsafety I had in childhood. I discovered the idea when I was teaching about anti-oppressive and liberation theories as part of my social work, um, education work. In this capacity, I found that the that voice was used in post-colonial and feminist traditions. A lack of voice signifies the marginalisation of minority status groups. Post-colonialist theories, for example, explain the marginalisation for people of colour in colonised countries. Feminism explains women's oppression in patriarchal countries. Members of these minority status groups lack a politically influential voice and have to find it as part of their respective struggles against racism and sexism. So it just seemed to be a really valuable concept, this idea of voice, even though I was applying it to myself as an individual uh, little girl, um, little girl growing up in the world, it had some parallels. Certainly, um, as I came to appreciate more and more around the sexism I experienced being a female back in the 1950s and 60s, Aside from the theories in books, in everyday usage, voice is a strange word and it is far from self-evident what it means. For the moment, I'm using it to indicate an ability to verbalise my needs and interests, that I can speak with some confidence that, that I will be heard and that my needs will be met if possible. I definitely didn't have that confidence as a child. This gets complicated quickly, thinking about voice as the ability to verbalise our needs as the ability to have a voice sits in relationship with others. Where there is inequality or violence in those relationships, a voice is just one dimension of a person's selfhood that could be under threat. And of course this had quite a lot of significance for me. It wasn't all about my individual ability, it was about the relationships I was in, what I was wanting and needing to be heard. For me, being a girl in a sexist society being poor and with a working-class background, had intersecting harmful consequences. These minority statuses of being a girl and being poor and, and being in a working-class background and town, in fact, um, 
made my personal lack of voice part of a bigger picture of who is valued and who is listened to in our society. This is where the precious gift of my work helped me really understand the sociological and the political nature of voice, not just the personal private absence of ability. I learnt very early on that it wasn't me or my people who were valued or listened to. This line of thinking about voice can be expanded to the current national debate in Australia on whether First Nation people should be given a voice in Parliament. Here, voice has a complicated and contested meaning and is central in a political struggle for recognition of First Nation people. It's about their collective ability to have an influence over matters which impact them. Very clearly, the political nature of voice coming through there. Our childhood and our adult life experiences can be deeply shaped by the presence of love or its absence. My family of origin reflected the dominant norms of the time. In this way, it was a microcosm of the wider inequalities in society. In my family, my mother and father did what they could in impoverished circumstances to care for us. So I certainly believe that care is one component of love. They, were, they really tried to care for us the best they could. But I've also come to realise that other skills and awarenesses are needed for love to be present. Love is also about having a critical understanding of what's going on in the world. This understanding then needs linking to what's happening in the family in terms of fairness and how we treat each other. This is me thinking back and bringing a sociological analysis to my family, which obviously I did not have at the time and neither did my parents, in a, not in a very developed way either. For example, love is about understanding the impacts if we're a member of a minority status group or family. Minority status people are members of social groups who are unfairly treated by one or more inequalities such as racism, ageism, classism, able-bodiedism and sexism. In my circumstances, the impacts related to our family's lower socioeconomic status and the prejudice related to this. We were poor. We were really poor. We, and it, we had to get free books at school and it was, that was always embarrassing every semester to be called up by the principal to get the free books. We were really poor. I was constantly shamed around being poor as a child, and that can be very harmful. The impoverishment of not having enough money to buy for the basic necessities of a big family affected our relationships with each other. Shaming directly led me to not feeling loved. This idea of shame becomes quite a strong theme in the book, and how unworthiness and lovelessness get hold of not only individuals but whole groups of people in society. Love is closely dependent on having self-knowledge, knowledge of others and knowledge of relationships and how to build loving relationships. So we're talking here about love is not just something that everyone knows how to do and then no matter what our circumstances we all are loving. 
perhaps the context and circumstances deeply affect our ability to love the socio-historical context in which we're growing up, the resources we have to have our basic needs met and so on. So, And also the knowledge of how relationships work and how to treat each other no matter what the context. Lack in these relationship areas at home and at school meant lovelessness was a more common feature of growing up for me. So what's interesting and just a side comment to me is that I didn't feel love at school either and uh, most of the people I had contact with obviously were other children my own age um, uh, and but also a whole lot of people who are paid to give an education and to show duty of care to children and I did not feel loved by teachers. Some of the teachers were totally scary and frightening and highly authoritarian. Not all, but some were. So that I didn't feel a loving, safe environment at school was was a double loss for me. It could have really made a big difference. One, as, one of the aspects of lovelessness that I grew up with was a strong sense of how unfair it was that my father could be and was violent. It seemed he could behave however he wanted. There was no one holding him responsible. His mates weren't holding him responsible. Other people in the local community who knew that it was happening were not holding him responsible to act differently. Nobody stepped up. It always perplexed me how it was left to us children and our mother to try and keep our home safe against the odds. This is where my sense of injustice was cultivated. However, I had to bury it because my survival instinct silenced me. I had to be loyal and keep the secret in the family. I realised when there was such an unabiding sense of safety and injustice, to be loved in that situation would always be compromised. Didn't understand it this way as a child. This is how I see it now. Feeling love was not going to be possible because it was so unsafe for us children who were basically too frightened to ask for our needs or protect ourselves. Lack of love, how I've come to understand it, had the opposite effect. As a child, I rarely felt safe and was often unable to keep my siblings safe because of the domestic violence we experienced. This had a formative influence on my ideas around love. I would say I did not feel love as a child. I've been seeking to understand love and to give love to others my whole life as a social worker. It's inspired amazing things and amazing dedications. To be at this time in my life, it is timely to pause and think, what would my childhood look like if my parents had the support and knowledge they needed to be fully loving? What would it look like if they kept not only caring for us, but really met my, the needs of myself and my siblings, and as part of this, were willing and able to hear us? Instead, they raised us with the attitude that children should be seen and not heard. This was very much the norm at the time, but it left a gaping hole in my heart. Living with domestic violence that is not declared and addressed also a norm in my hometown, was frightening and heartbreaking. 
I wanted somewhere in the book to talk about domestic violence because it is such a serious issue in our society. Um, And I made that very complex ethical decision to locate it in my childhood experience because it was so formative on who I am in the world and I could speak with more authenticity than describing other people's experiences of domestic violence. It is a really serious problem. And I can't be sure that I have done enough in my career to be sensitive to that, being more likely than not with all the people I ever had contact with. So lovelessness was about the inability of adults in my life to take responsibility for actions that caused harm. Their caring was undermined by the presence of violence. This failure negatively impacted my ability to have a sense of self-esteem and with that, a sense of self-control and agency. The shame I experienced as a child is a familiar experience for minority status people who are being devalued in some way. For me to be devalued and shamed meant I felt judged by more powerful people to be unworthy or less desirable. For a child, feelings of shame and being unworthy predominantly derive from adultism. Adultism causes feelings of being silenced, not heard and not seen as a child. It's a prejudice so ingrained in society that it's hard to find public spaces where the harm it causes is recognised and debated. So this idea of adultism is of seeing children of lesser worth and um, lesser worth as human beings and holding an an unequal regard for them, not treating children as equals. Stigma causing, that is, the causing of shaming people can have very harmful consequences. I failed to thrive as a child as I was so weighed down with self-doubt, hypervigilance and loneliness. And remember, this was in a very busy, crowded household that I felt so alone. Stigmatising behaviours can take many forms, but are usually taken for granted messages, such as children should speak only when spoken to, and she's a girl, what would she know? These messages are examples of adultism, where a child is made to feel less important than an adult in a myriad of ways. Stigma messages and actions are actually forms of discrimination. In turn, discrimination is illegal. Anti-discrimination legislation recognises the harm caused by discrimination of all kinds, yet it is prevalent and typically not called out and addressed. From my point of view, how I've come to understand it, stigma and discrimination are acts of violence and include failures to avoid causing stigma and violence against minority status groups. So failure to act as much as the failure, the the acting to cause harm and stigma and shaming are what I'm really interested in unpacking in this book. The Convention on the Rights of the Child declares that children should grow up in a family environment that is loving, happy and understanding. Like many children who experience domestic violence, I was unfairly treated. 
I was powerless to protect myself and others in my family. I was denied my right to a safe home. I lost my innocence as a child. I was denied my personhood of being a child with wants, needs and agency. I was denied my basic human rights. It left me brokenhearted. It's really hard reading this. <laughs> it's really hard writing it as well. But I just wanted to be as authentic as I could. So hopefully this idea of lovelessness is starting to take shape for you if you weren't already familiar with it. Just a little bit further. I think, in fact, it's just another couple of pages on this chapter, if you'll bear with me, um, and hopefully you're finding this interesting. I had little glimmers of hope for love mattering as a child, little moments of being heard, being seen, and not being ignored. It was very fleeting, and it didn't only come from within my family. Someone else recognising who I was and encouraging me on my way kept me going for years. There was a teacher in my class uh, in fourth grade, and I remember her saying something to us. It wasn't only to me, but I heard it in a very particular way. She said, you can all grow up to be whatever you want to be. You just need to work toward that happening. And I thought, oh, I think that message is for me. It was just a little glimmer of hope that there could be a future for me, that it could be a life without the absolutely depleting, soul-destroying effects of living with violence or the fear of violence day by day. For me and untold others, someone somewhere needed to show up for me so many other times as well. My ideas about lovelessness are strongly influenced by Bell Hooks, who explains that lovelessness at its most simplest means the absence of love. She ties lovelessness to systems of domination and violence. Two examples of such systems that impacted my family I've mentioned already, they are sexism and classism. There was gender bias against the girls and my mother, and there was class, socioeconomic status, bias against my family. This idea of lovelessness gives us a much broader and less recognised understanding of what the lack of love is about. Lovelessness is caused by violence and injustice in our relationships, homes and workplaces. It's not only our homes, wherever we are, wherever people are. Indicators of lovelessness are stigmatising ideas and behaviours, including self-stigma. Writers describe self-stigma as internalised oppression when minority status people take on social messages which devalue them. Whether by our own hands or the actions of others, lovelessness is involved in any use of power that infringes on the autonomy and self-esteem of a person or group. Another influential writer, Paulo Freire, wrote about it in terms of oppression calling dehumanisation. This is about being made to feel less worthy as a human being. It's not usually caused by an isolated single negative message or action that has a negative effect. It tends to be caused by recurring social patterns enacted in everyday situations by ordinary people. 
My family absorbed social messages of shame about being poor and made this shaming part of our family's reality. When the Salvation Army came to our door to give us a food parcel, my mum turned them away. She felt shamed. We had no food in the cupboard. Dad was on strike from his work and had been for weeks. We were in desperate straits, but the shaming made it impossible to receive the help. A loving act at our front door was not enough to overcome the harm caused by the stigma of being poor. This part of the chapter, I try to bring the main argument about the, what the problem is with lovelessness. The problem with lovelessness is it underpins all forms of violence and injustice. Lovelessness creates social situations where violence can breed without the moral compass of love. It serves the social function of controlling undesirable people. It causes a range of experiences in the unloved, which in turn can cause dehumanisation. That is, lovelessness can make the unloved feel less than human. It can erode a person's sense of well-being and can negatively impact their whole personhood. Without love from others, a person can struggle to have self-esteem, sometimes called self-love, and can't flourish. Some people die because of a lack of love. Further, other animals fail to thrive and can die due to a lack of love. Nature loses her capacity to renew and support life when she is unloved through being excessively exploited and polluted. Pretty heavy duty, isn't it? Just laying the foundations for what I then unpack for the rest of the book. Just one more paragraph, if you can stay with me. Um, Lovelessness underpins denial of voice, agency and rights of minority status groups, such as children in domestic violence situations. In these kinds of situations, there is a failure to provide love, care and safety. There is also a failure to address the harm being caused by the lack of love. The double jeopardy is that the unloved can be blamed for their own suffering. This prejudicial pattern of blaming the victim can hide the broader causes of lovelessness. It can also hide who is responsible for the harm. Lovelessness is not then recognised and continues to create a milieu where violence and injustice are possible and socially sanctioned. One of the most devastating discoveries um, when I became a social worker was how I was not the only person who grew up in a domestic violence situation. And most of the people I saw, especially when I was working in the mental health area, were experiencing violence. Um, Not always only at home, but mostly at home and sometimes in their workplaces, sometimes at school. It was the most disturbing discovery of my life. It's one thing to grow up feeling unloved, how I now would name it, um, and brokenhearted, how I now would name it, but to discover so many other people in the world who, in their life, which was obviously not the same as mine, but had some similarities at times, 
had experienced extreme lovelessness in the form of violence and trauma. Um, it's no accident. I'm a social worker. <laughs> okay, um, so that's the end of the first chapter that lays the foundations for the rest of the book on brokenheartedness. It's fairly um, heavy, heavy duty. Um, what I'm claiming, um, and happy to find spaces um, to have conversations wherever you might like to connect with me about it. And I hope I hope that was of some interest to you. And I'll be back before too long with Chapter 2, which is on the topic of violence. Uh, And it it is a much longer chapter, and I will just use some examples from that chapter to explain to you how I understand violence, which becomes possible when there is a lack of love in the world. Okay, thank you so much. See you. Bye now.